0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is Published or Not. Is it the way reading, writing and arithmetic are taught that makes for a good teacher? Or is it a student's understanding and personal growth? Petronella McGovern's new book is called The Good Teacher. Welcome, Petronella.
2: Hi, Jan. Thanks for having me. Well,
1: tell us a little about the suburb of Wirriga, where your story is set.
2: Well, the book is set, um, it's actually a fictional suburb, but I feel it's quite um, it's quite believable. It's set on the northern beaches of Sydney, but it could be in Melbourne or somewhere else. And it's near, you know, the tourist seaside suburb of Manly where all the tourists go. But Wirriga is just across the freeway. It's at a dead end. So the tourists don't reach that, but it's a lovely old 1960s suburb, five minutes from the beach, backing onto bushland, And it's a sort of place where people buy a house and then they never leave because it has so many wonderful aspects.
1: It has that village feel. But being close to the beach, there's limited rentals and into this community come Luke and Gracie. Who are they?
2: So Luke and Gracie have moved to Sydney for a um, medical specialist to help with Gracie's uh, unusual rare disease. And Gracie's a year old just about to start kindergarten and Luke is her father. He has lost his wife in the bushfires in Victoria and he's grieving and also trying to do the best for his daughter.
1: Well, Gracie is starting school and is put into the good teacher's grade. So tell us who's the good teacher?
2: Well, Alison is the good teacher of the book. Yes, and Gracie comes into her class and Alison has been teaching at this school. She grew up in Wirriga. She's been teaching here for 12 years, so she knows the community and she is known as the good teacher. But something has recently happened for Alison.
1: Well, no, it it is late January, the start of the school year, and Alison is talking to the Scottish school secretary. Let's hear a little bit from uh, Petronella McGovern about the good teacher
2: from page 9. Alison had considered taking leave without pay this term, but she needed the money. Perhaps she should have asked for a transfer to another part of Sydney, but she didn't have the energy to learn new systems and build new friendships. Lack of sleep was making her brain fuzzy. I feel like such a middle-aged cliche, Alison moaned to Shona. I'm a laughingstock. No, he's the cliche, Shona said. It's not your fault. But soon they'll they'll all know that I'm not enough, not interesting enough, not smart enough, not funny enough, not clever enough, not pretty enough, not enough to keep a husband of 24 years and evidently not enough for her 15-year-old son either.
1: Well, the 15-year-old son is Felix and the husband is Tony. Now he's left her. But what does Alison know
2: about this other woman? Well, this is why Alison has uh, changed from a good teacher to a very confused, um, lost ex-wife because Tony has told her nothing about the new wo- uh, the new woman and hasn't explained why he wants to leave the marriage after 24 years. So Alison is really in the dark, very confused, very obviously upset, devastated about her future and upset that, yes, her son has followed her husband down to the beach where he's living.
1: Alison and husband Tony were known as very kind people that often open up their house for others to stay with them but now she's all alone in this great big house and she's worried about the noises in the parkland behind and she's also got other things that are causing her lack of self-confidence. You've written about these pretty well in a middle-aged woman. What else was worrying her?
2: Well, I think she's at that age. She's about to turn 50 and she'd expected to be going on holiday with her husband, celebrating her 25th wedding anniversary. And when Tony leaves, her whole future is turned upside down and suddenly she's going into menopause and she just feels completely abandoned and I think, you know, washed up and what, what, who is she anymore? She doesn't understand who she is.
1: And she even walked out of a shop. Forgetting to pay, which embarrassed her 15-year-old son incredibly. Oh. So Tony is accusing her of stalking her and is also pressing her to sell the house. What does she do instead?
2: So Alison takes all the love that she had for uh, Tony and her son and puts it upon Gracie, who's this vulnerable motherless girl in her class and starts getting very involved in Gracie's life to the point where she works out a solution to her kindness and to stop Tony selling the house where she invites Luke and Gracie to come and stay with her for a few weeks. And so that fills the house with people and also stops Tony from trying to sell too quickly.
1: And to thank Allison, Luke offers to take her out for dinner and offers to be her wingman because there's quite a bit of an age difference, you know. And because of this, Alison has her first one-night <laughs> stand. <laughs> that was a funny bit of writing.
2: Well, it's there's a lot of emotion going on elsewhere. So I felt, you know, the reader needs a little moment of humour and amusement, yes. So, Alison, um, so Alison's 49 and Luke has just turned 30. And he says, I'll be your wingman. And she's like, I haven't dated since, you know, since I was at university. I've been with Tony so long. And they go to a bar. And uh, yes, yeah. and to his word, Luke is a very good wingman and helps her find Emmanuel to have a, uh, a meeting with, a date mm-hmm. with.
1: <laughs> One night stand, or will it be? Luke is working at Nico's gym. He's very popular there. And he also catches the eye of Maz.
2: she's eight years younger but tell us about her well Maz is um, young enthusiastic energetic fit beautiful gorgeous and a little naive Mm. but quite ambitious so she is looking to expand her career as a gym instructor and she's looking for other ways to go online and do more with her career she finds Luke very attractive, but understands he has, yes, he's not quite the right time.
1: Maz comes from a family where food means love and she's very concerned about her overweight father. Why is that?
2: Yes, her father has arthritis in his knees and he has high cholesterol and Maz being a a very enthusiastic gym instructor is trying to convince her father to lose weight and her mother and it's really brought on a lot by a tragedy that happened when she was working at the gym and she doesn't want to lose her father, she loves him obviously and loves her family. So she's the opposite to the rest of her family who believe bacon and eggs and a a nice stew is the answer for everything. And she's trying to eat um, chicken breasts and salad.
1: She really wants to be what they're not. She wants to be fit and also wealthy. So what business does she get into on the side?
2: So Mads starts looking into supplements, which a friend has been doing in Thailand and sending over bodybuilding supplements and a range of supplements for the gym. And she gets more and more involved with Luke and Gracie and she decides that perhaps she could help Gracie as well with some supplements. There's also diet suppressants. so And she wants to use a father
1: as a before and after with the diet suppressants. And the, the local community get to know that she's in bringing in some chemicals. So it's even Felix who's taking some supplements for extra muscle. If Alison, his mother, knew about this, what would she think about it?
2: Well, Alison would be absolutely furious. She doesn't she's comes from a very scientific family. Yes, she doesn't believe in any kind of alternate medicines and supplements. And she would be furious that Maz is selling, you know, natural, natural supplements to her 15-year-old son for uh, bodybuilding. And I guess playing on his, he feels he's a bit underweight and not quite as good looking or as as strong as, a, as girls think as a teenager, and yes, she's Maz is kind of playing onto that um, fear that he has. Now,
1: little sick Gracie has very strict food guidelines: no sugar, no nuts. But what does Allison do to cause problems for Gracie?
2: Well, unlike some of the other characters, Allison does like to eat all the. Uh, so-called bad foods, and she particularly loves ice cream. Ice cream oh. is the one thing she shares with her, with her own family who've left. And so, yes, she's often giving Gracie a secret ice cream to cheer her up. And then she accidentally gives Gracie a cold, so she sneaks in a bit of
1: cold and flu syrup and worries about that and then cooks with sesame oil one night, causing grief for Gracie yes. and guilt. Alison. So what about giving Gracie supplements? You know, the dad Luke is desperate for a cure, desperate to try anything and everything. And there looks like there is a possibility of a cure in America. What's that?
2: Yes, well, Gracie's specialist has managed to get them onto a trial in America for her very rare disease. Uh, The only issue is that they need a lot of money to get there. Alison is Determined to help them, and she starts a fundraising campaign to get them over to America.
1: And the whole school backs her, and then the whole community all decide to get this $1,400,000 raised, and they do so in a month. So by the end of part one, Luke and Gracie are off to Chicago, but then Maz gets a
2: letter about her business. Who's it from? So Maz gets a letter from the Australian Border Force saying that her supplements have been seized and contain some illegal chemicals that are not permitted in Australia. And and Maz is is importing a number of different supplements and she's not sure which supplement it is and who received it. And she's very scared and worried that she's going to be arrested by the police, but also worried about who she might have harmed. This is just part one. And as I say. (laughs) There's
1: three parts to this story and the twists and turns go from good intentions to betrayals. Now, we can't talk about any of this because it's all such a surprise as you keep on reading. But what I have loved is you you collected so many inspiring quotes and mottos and slogans from gym walls to hospital wards.
2: And where did you get them all from? I actually had a lot more before (laughs) I cut some out. Well, I think it really just ties in with the characters. So Alison is reading Aesop fables to her class and she's trying to make them understand kindness through some of the fables and the morals. And Maz is a very optimistic young gym instructor who likes a good positive motto. I have to remember what hers is now. <laughs> destiny. Be, be in charge of your destiny. Yeah, and, be in charge and of your is, destiny.
1: Um, you know, uh, failure is only a mindset. Now, in comparison to the Aesop fables, which are no one is too weak to do good, and it's just it, this contrast is wonderful between those health gym slogans and Aesop fable morals. Look, as well as enjoying the Aesop fables, I particularly like the alliteration of m words in this book being a victim can it makes or marses, and then there are the making valiant machinations and the munchausen syndrome look at all these m's Were you aware of all of these m's
2: not until you said it but there, <laughs> there you go Yes, yeah, so there's a bit of I've forgotten about the Shakespearean quotes as well. Yes. Yes, there are definitely a lot of different uh, quotes coming in from different places <laughs> to uh, align with various characters and their motivations. Another M-word with their motivations. Yes. Well, I've got to ask. Did Felix finish writing his essay on Othello? <laughs> he did. He finished, yes. As much as he hated it, he got it done. <laughs> and, it, of course, it
1: plays against the whole of the, the plot of this story, all the betrayals that are going on in Othello and in real life. Well, Petronella McGovern's suspense novel of kindness and betrayal culminates when the good teacher crosses the line from professional to personal. Thank you very much, Petronella. Thank you, Jan. It's been a pleasure. And now it's David's turn.
0: A murder, a suspect found at the scene, and 12 hours to find an answer, S.R. White provides an intriguing insight into the interview process behind an investigation in his crime fiction novel, Hermit. So, Steve, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. Good to be here, David. Now, a country shopkeeper has been murdered, Lou Cassavet. The police have a suspect, Nathan Whitler. But can you explain to the listeners the 12-hour limit they have to interview Nathan?
3: Yes, so this is set in a a fictional town in Australia, so I played a little bit fast and loose with the law. But the basic premise is that uh, Nathan Whitler comes into the station and refuses to have a lawyer, says he's fine, he doesn't need a lawyer, but also refuses to talk. So the setup is basically Dana, the uh, investigating officer, has to try and tease out what's happened before the court decides that he must have a lawyer, whether he wants one or not, and appoints one for him. Once the lawyer's appointed for him, of course, the first thing the lawyer's going to tell Nathan to do is to shut up and say nothing. So Dana's on a timescale of 12 hours at best, but she has to give rest, she has to give recuperation, She has to avoid any sense that she's bullying or cajoling him, but still get to the truth. Now, Nathan is an unusual character. He is the reason for the book's title, Hermit. But how much can you give away of his
0: background?
3: Okay, so what they know at the beginning is that there's basically a 15-year gap in Nathan's life that they can't fill. They can't find any information from tax, from bank records, no phone, no address, no car. Um, His life is just a black hole for 15 years. And because it's a black hole, they have no way of knowing who he is, what he's done, whether he's dangerous, what crimes he may have committed. He's just completely off the radar. And for the investigators, that's a big problem because it means they have no starting point. Nathan is also very idiosyncratic. In his behavior.
0: Eventually, he opened the water bottle and poured. He tilted the cup as if he were pouring a beer. The glugging sound was incongruously loud. She watched him scrape the cup's rim along the side of the bottle to catch a drip. He didn't take a drink. Instead, he turned the water bottle so that the label faced him. This is slightly aspergerish in
3: demeanor, isn't it? It is. I think one of the things with people who are very isolated is that they develop habits and they develop traits that become very entrenched. So that was one of the things I wanted to get across, that Nathan has been isolated from the world for 15 years. And in doing that, he's developed systems, processes, habits, ticks, that he really can't leave behind when he gets into an interview room.
0: The lead investigator, as you've already alluded to, is Dana Russo. But in many ways, she is actually like Nathan reaching for a drawer. Dana checked for her inhaler. There were seven lined up like sentries. There should be six because she should have one on her. It bothered her that she'd forgotten and simply gone into the interview room unarmed. She pocketed one, tapped each of the rest with her index finger and closed the drawer. This is obsessive compulsive behaviour but she's not necessarily a
3: hermit like Nathan but in many ways
0: she is. There's a connection
3: between these two. Very much so. Um, Dana's an introvert and an introvert in an extrovert world so she also has habits and ticks and processes and the book really plays off the interaction between the two in a sense that they have a shared connection even though they're on opposite sides of the argument. She also has a backstory which is the opening of the novel chapter one she's
0: in a very compromised situation shall we say
3: yeah this is uh, dana's day with a capital d so this is the one day a year where she tries to examine uh, what's happened in her past the traumas it's caused and whether basically she wishes to continue living for another year so on this day she's very much on a knife edge emotionally and psychologically and yet she's dragged into this investigation because she's the one person who can solve it.
0: So really, we've got two similar characters in a way, and their interchange is part of the interview process. She has to establish a rapport. She can identify in some ways with Nathan, but then she has to give some of herself away in order to draw Nathan out. This is a very tricky balancing act.
3: Yes, there's a very delicate sort of quid pro quo taking place um, throughout all the interviews. Dana really only makes progress when she gives, but when she gives, it's uh, emotionally painful for her, but it's also revealing things to the world that she would rather keep hidden. She's acutely conscious that what's said in that room has a wider audience than just Nathan.
0: She also violates Nathan's space at times. She's got to give him unfortunate news and there are things, discoveries they make in the investigative process which serve almost as a violation with which she can identify herself.
3: Yes absolutely. At the end of the day she is still investigating a murder. Part of the drama comes from the revelations and discoveries that take place during that investigation but she has to find a way of handling that in a way that retains her empathy and retains her connection to Nathan. Otherwise, she's not going to get to the root of the crime.
0: What is also nicely done is a contrast of interviewing styles. You've got Mike Francis, who's another detective, working with Dana. And he has to interview Spencer Lynch, a divorce lawyer, because there could be another or other suspects in this crime. So, Megan Cassavette, I've only seen photos. Do they do her justice? Lynch smirked. Mike reminded himself to keep his composure easy to flail about and drown in this much oil. She's a very attractive woman, detective. Occupational hazard of being a divorce lawyer. You meet the good and bad. A little like my job, Spencer. Can, can I call you Spencer? I mean, we both meet people of all sorts, often at the worst moment of their lives and that they're most vulnerable. Lynch crossed his legs, inching the chair back as he did so, to ensure no part of his bespoke tailoring touched a police table. I'm the lawyer, but often they want a human touch. Mike crossed his arms and gave level gaze. Must be a tricky balancing act, Spence. What, with your ironclad code of ethics? Lynch tried to control a flicker, but he had a slight blink that would lose him a fortune at poker, A little unlucky for a negotiator of divorce spoils, Mike thought. Oh, Lynch asked, is there a point to this line of questioning? Mike jabbed at the file with an index finger. Witness, saw your BMW fiber driving away from Megan Cassavets early this morning. It's been seen near there many times before. The rubbish can on the corner of the lawn, that's the signal, yeah? Lynch's embarrassment rose from collar to scalp in two seconds. House to house spence apparently mundane and random, actually carefully planned and nearly always useful. We're very diligent about that sort of thing. Mike paused. Lynch coughed and glowed red like a ripe apple. We searched the Cassavet house, used bed sheets in the washing machine. We called on Megan before she could switch it on. Sheets still moist. Mike raised an eyebrow. Care to bet your lucrative career against the DNA lab? My money's on the lab.
3: An intriguing contrast of interviewing style. Yeah, very much so. One of the things I wanted to emphasise in the book is how much care and attention and planning detectives do before they walk into a room. Um, And that's the same with Mike. Even though he has a different approach, um, he's still done all the groundwork. He's still done all the look through all the interviews, all the face-to-face, house-to-house stuff. He's all done all the DNA and the fingerprints and so on. So it's a different style, but they're still taking the same amount of care. But he's got
0: Spencer sort of sprawling on a pin there at that time. <laughs> Another intriguing point you make is about evidence. We look into smart meters on fuse boxes. That's amazing detail. Yeah,
3: it's, it's, I find that sort of thing really interesting. It's um, the same with things like Fitbit watches. Um, there's so much technology now that seem to root you in a place and time and i think sometimes readers think well all you need to do is look at someone's phone and absolutely everything about their life is on the phone but i wanted to make the point that even if that information is available it still has to be checked cross-referenced double-checked um it's not the sort of slam dunk that you might think that it is but
0: with the electric meter box you can actually work out when People were the most active uh, when they're starting to get up in the morning. And so there's this intimate detail about people's lives that we can obtain.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think Lucy as well finds that a bit disturbing. Um, it is a bit worrying when you start thinking about you know, your fridge being connected to the Internet and so on. Just how much information people can pilfer from your life if, if they have the option to do so.
0: But is it possible therefore today to actually have an alibi or fabricate an alibi with so much information out there?
3: It's possible to set that up. Whether people find that information convincing or whether it survives the the cross-checking process is another matter, but yes, certainly within the book, there's a suggestion that it's possible to fabricate that or it's possible that that information clears someone.
0: The challenge of course remains is to find the motivation for the murder and Nathan doesn't seem to have one. You do actually resolve that, but of course the listener will have to find the answer for themselves by reading the book. What remains unresolved is Dana's backstory. Is this opening up the potential for a sequel?
3: Yes, that's the plan. Uh, The plan is to make a series of books. So I'm I'm almost finished the second book and just starting the third. Um, So the idea is that Dana's life and Dana's backstory fully unravels over a series of books.
0: And will this one be contained within 12 hours, the next
3: one? Or do you have some other structure for it? Uh, The next one takes about 36 hours for them to investigate. So it takes place over two days, not one.
0: Well, she's got a little more time. If she can resol- resolve it in 12.36, is isn't going to be a problem at all. <laughs> now, the book is Hermit. The author, S.R. White, I found the S stands for Steve, and it's yep. a Hachette release. So, Steve, thank you very much for talking with me today. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, David. Cheers. Good on you, Steve. Catch you again. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week.
1: I look, more books to read for next week, more authors to
0: chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week.
1: See you then. Well, let's Bye. talk then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.